You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Hello and welcome. It's Noah Rosenfarb, your host of the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Today, our guest is the author of Sell Your Business for an Outrageous Price. His name's Kevin Short. He's also the managing partner of Clayton Capital Partners, a leading middle market M&A advisory firm based in St. Louis. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Laura. Glad to be here. So how'd you get the, uh, I love the title. I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's wonderful because it's descriptive of what so many owners want. How did you come up with the concept and tell me what's gone into the book? Yeah, well, you probably, I've been in the M&A business for 25 years representing uh, privately held companies, family-owned businesses between 10 and $200 million in value. So been doing deals for a long time. Along the way, when we would use our typical auction process, which means we don't put a selling price on our companies at any point, any of our deals, there would be deals when we would say, okay, next Friday we want your offers. We might get 10 offers then on a company. It's not unusual to get 10 to 15. When that happens, we had a few cases where the first place bidder was twice the second place bidder. So... I remember one in particular in the steel processing business. They offered us an eight multiple of their EPDA, their their cash flow in effect, and everybody else was offering uh, four or five times EPDA. So while we were perplexed as to why would they do that, obviously we moved forward and closed the deal. And and when I saw the president of the buyer six months later, I said, how's it going? Because I figured by that time he'd figured out that he'd paid twice what he needed to. And he said, well, it's going really well. Do you have any other sellers like that? Which caught me off guard because I thought he was going to complain. I said, well, tell me what's going on. And he said, well, you know, we got rid of the union and we we merged buildings and we we took some of their products and put it through our worldwide platform and put some of our products through their distribution channel. We have made our money back in six months. Now, I went from thinking I'd sold that thing for an eight times multiple and then figured out that he, based on what he made with it, we sold it for about six months of earnings. So it was, it was a real eye-opening moment. And as I go back over my career and as I've watched ever since that happened, those moments do happen occasionally. And really what it comes down to is those buyers uh, had figured out they could make a lot more money with my client's company than my client was, usually because of some form of uh, competitive advantage that they're picking up or some kind of synergy. So that's what began the thinking process is, why does this happen? So we spent a number of years talking to buyers all over the country, all over the world, actually, finding out what drives their valuation. And when they have the right synergies and when they're a billion-dollar company buying a $20 million company, they can afford to pay up to get a hold of the company because of what they'll do with it after closing. So unfortunately, a buyer does not tell you that. They don't say, I can afford to pay you a lot more money. They will try to get it cheaper as a rule. And that began the journey of how do we figure out how to prepare a company 
how do we figure out if a company is a candidate to get an outrageous price? So all those things were baked into the uh, process. It took five years to write the book that was released recently by Amicom Books in September. And so that's what went into it, was figuring out why do buyers pay up this much money, who's a candidate for it, and what can you do to prepare your company to make sure that you get that kind of a price. So those are the fundamentals that went into the book. Well, that's great. Well, five years, that's a long journey. Thank you for being persistent and yeah. putting out this intellectual property into the marketplace. I appreciate it. It's, uh, uh, it's our pleasure. I actually, I actually enjoyed it a lot. I had a, uh, a uh, editor co-writing with me, and we did a ton of research once we got into it. it was, it's hard to articulate because it's hard to, to describe what I feel when I look at a company and it has the competitive advantages that we think we could leverage into a bigger price. It's hard to describe that on paper. That's why it took a long time. You know, I think that the core thesis of the book goes into the four pillars that owners need to have in place to fetch this extraordinary price. And you referred to the first one, which is a competitive advantage. Why don't you walk me through kind of a definition of competitive advantage, and then maybe you could share a story of a company and the competitive advantage they had. So competitive advantage, the concept of competitive advantage was invented by a Harvard professor by the name of Michael Porter. And we, were, we lean heavily on him in our book and refer to him often because he's written a great deal about where are competitive advantages in your company. And our simple thinking about it is, are you doing something that is causing the big players in your industry, are you causing them a lot of pain in their business, or are you an opportunity for a lot of gain for them? And we've done deals with both. So we represented a company that was in the business of manufacturing signposts for highway signs. And the big competitor was Tyco. Tyco owned about 95% of the market in that sector. And my client had figured out, Tyco was selling the signposts for about $1,700 a ton. My client had figured out a way he could do it for 600 So we worked with him for two years to gain the attention of Tyco and to make them uh, pay attention to my client. Because my client was barely on the radar screen. And we developed a plan to get their attention. We more along the lines of kicking David or kicking Goliath in the kneecap, uh, like a David and Goliath scenario. And so we would have these very public sales for $900 a ton. And the signpost business is a public bid business. So all the states around the country were aware that this company was selling for 900 And for years, they'd been paying uh, 1700 So they got the attention of the buyer. They called up. And, you know, basically threatened my clients, you're screwing up the pricing of the industry, you know, all these types of things. Well, my client was very well financed and was able to do this for over a number of months. And eventually they said, we just need to buy you and put you out of your misery. We said, no, we're not for sale. We continue to have the sales and sell the product. And eventually they called and said, we want to buy you. And I said, well, we're not for sale. And if we were, we would want to be sold for a multiple of the earnings we're going to have after we grow our business over the next few years. Well, any growth in that sector was going to come from them. Uh, and so the company was worth about probably 2 or $3 million. It was that small. And what we said to them was, we think this company is going to make $5 million in per year at the end of the next four years with our growth. So if you want to multiply four multiple times $5 million and pay us $20 million bucks, we will sell to you. Well, of course, they thought that was ridiculous and hung up the phone. And we continued to have sales. So over time, we continued to kick them in the kneecap, which was our strategy on this deal. Not every deal, but on this deal it was. And they would keep calling up and saying, 
all right, we're willing to raise our offer to four, to six, to eight, to ten. This this happened over a year. Ultimately, we closed the deal for $14 million, and that was a classic case of we were able to leverage the pain we were causing them because we were causing them margin in uncomfortable meetings with customers. We were able to leverage that into a $14 million cash sale price, and that was one of our early outrageous price deals. So the first pillar is you've got to be doing something that's going to cause the big buyer. You need a big buyer, which is the second pillar. You have to be able to cause them a lot of pain or give them an opportunity for a lot of gains. We've done both a lot of times. Now, the second pillar second pillar is you have to have a buyer that's very big. At the end of the day, if you're going to be paid an outrageous price, buyer has to go to a bank and finance the deal. They'll never get their loan because no bank's going to approve a price that's twice the average multiple in that industry. So you need a buyer that does not need to go to a bank. And so that leaves you with the big buyer. So often our buyers are billion-dollar players and our sellers are 20, 30, 40 million dollars. That's the second pillar, big buyer. Come back to the, on the competitive advantage side. And okay. clearly in the example of the steel processor, if they could sell it at 900 and make money and, and their competitor selling at 1700, the competitor, presumably Tyco bought them, was able to reduce their cost based on whatever technology they had or, or innovative way they did business. So Tyco could make money from it, not just wipe out, uh, you know, swat a fly. But maybe share another example where there was that opportunity for gain, where one of your clients, you know, they developed some intellectual property that had a lot of value. They couldn't exploit the value without the opportunity of that billion-dollar giant. In the case of the steel signpost guy, surprisingly to us, when Tyco closed the deal, they dismantled the equipment, the technology, and basically threw it away. And then they turned around and raised their prices to 2400 So they eliminated the competitive pressure, which got rid of a pain and turned it into a gain. So Tyco's still selling those signposts for a whole lot more money than they were before because there's no competition. So that would, in that particular case, it was both. We did a deal with a company that was in the highway construction business that specializes about a $115 million company. We sold it to a very large buyer out of Europe. They were building the roads in national parks. And well, you know, when I first saw the deal, I'm thinking, you know, road builders are not very sexy. People don't care. They don't buy them very often. Until we learned that they were building these roads in parks, national parks, federal, and the, the rules for that, the requirements are significant. So when you're in Yellowstone National Park building a road, you cannot move any dirt from its original location more than 100 feet away. Well, that makes it really hard to excavate and build roads. A. B. Your trucks cannot leak any fuel or oil on the ground. So that's a big deal. You've got to be on top of that. There's just a whole litany of, of rules and regs about how you do that business. So it's not as simple as dig a road and lay down uh, concrete or asphalt. And so they had corners of market on that, and they were known as the only guys in the country approved to do that. So when this large multinational road builder came along, we said to them, we're willing to sell to you, but it's going to cost you this. And they paid a lot more money for that than what somebody else would have paid to own that business because it gave them an opportunity for significant gain. This buyer also owned quarries all over the world, and they were able to leverage their quarries, that, that asset, into all of these parks also. So it became a multiplier effect. So let's talk a little bit about the buyers because that's the second pillar. And you mentioned the giants, but presumably not all of the buyers have to be giants as long as they have the capital. 
So share with me kind of the range of buyer stories of who's on the buy side willing to pay an outrageous price. I don't know that we've ever sold to a buyer that was less than a billion dollars in size because of the amount of cash it takes to do it. And even in a normal company, say a, you know, a few hundred million dollars, their investors are going to look at them cross-eyed if they're out there paying twice the multiple. Because they've probably made other acquisitions in this arena and they've paid a four or a five and now all of a sudden they want to pay an eight or a 10. It's hard to justify. And now if you have, you know, if you had a board of directors, you have to answer to, you have, to, you have shareholders. If you've got a big company that maybe isn't a billion dollar player, but it's owned privately, then they can pretty much do what they want to your point. But as a rule, it's going to be the big companies that are using petty cash in effect to pay for these companies and they can get the, the extreme synergies out of them. And so when you define an outrageous price, I think you talk, you know, kind of double the industry standard multiple. That's outrageous, right? right? And where do you see pricing right now or, or over the course of the last few years? You know, multiples are high in general. Is, is the margin between an outrageous price and a market price slimming in this hot market? No, I can't say that because I don't, there's no data to support outrageous price activity. As far as I know, we're the only firm out there pushing for that and focusing on it. So there's no data to compare that. In my experience, first of all, to your point, the average multiples have gone up. If you're in the right sector and you've got a, you know, a, a very pure, clean company, uh, what you could have sold for a four, three years ago could go for a six today. So multiples are up for clean companies in the right sector. The outrageous price is really a function of what you're willing to hang in there for and play poker for. Because at the end of the day, uh, the buyers will say internally, you know, we would like to pay a four or six, whatever it is for this company, because that's the industry average. But if we had to, we can make so much money with this, we can go up quite a bit. So that's what you're really playing on is how much they're going to make with it, which is independent of the market. Yeah. And when you're thinking about helping an owner attract an outrageous price, do they need more than one buyer that, that's willing to pay it? Or can you just focus uh, on an exclusive buyer? Generally, in the outrageous world, you're only going to have one or two buyers willing to go that route. Now, often we'll put this, we'll, we'll wrap the outrageous price process, we'll wrap it with, a, with a, a typical investment banking sale process. So you would, some clients come to me and say, I'm only going to sell if I get the outrageous price of an eight, a multiple, or nine, whatever it is. Others will come to me and say, I'm willing to take a five, but I'd like you to take a shot at getting me a ten. And do them in parallel. I can do them in, in parallel. It's different processes. At that point, then you're, you're managing one buyer differently than the rest of the pack. Yeah. So I had I, w- I was with a potential client the other day, and I didn't get dig into their financials, but you know my read of the situation was maybe they're making a million dollars a year of EBITDA, and yet he tells me I only sell my company for fifteen million. Well, that's beyond outrageous, right? Because uh, right. It, it just doesn't. I, I was telling him, you know, the the values don't compute. And his attitude was, no, if you look at my intellectual property and you take these five you know, multi-billion dollar international companies, if they were to acquire my intellectual property and apply it through their chain, their distribution model, they'd make dozens of millions. I think he's, you know, he's dreaming. How, what well, do you say so, to an owner like that? So we've got to do the math. I, I don't walk into Tyco or, or any of these other big companies and just make up numbers. I build a model. Based, you know, so you're talking about your client. I've got to build a model that I can defend. And the model says with your distribution channels, we think this product line 
which today is doing this amount of money, could do this amount of money through your distribution channel with this much margin. I've got to build a financial model to put in front of them because I can't just make up numbers because they'll laugh me out of the office. So if I can build a model that can support that dozens of millions of dollars can be made, then we got a real chance to get in front of the, the uh, big dogs and, and ask them for a big price. So let's talk about the third pillar, which is the seller. Because, you know, I, I would imagine every seller would like to have an outrageous price. But, right. you know, there, it's, it's not without, you know, I would assume some, some downside in the sense of either time planning, advanced planning, uh, making sure the business has the competitive advantage, and there's a buyer in the marketplace for it. So what does the seller need to be thinking about, and how do they get prepared to sell for an outrageous price? It's very interesting to watch my clients. There's some of them, once I explain the process to them, I give them the the image that think of yourself being in Vegas on TV playing these high-stakes poker games, because that's exactly what's going on. And the buyer isn't going to roll over and write you these big checks without testing you to see if they can get it cheaper. They'll call your bluff. You've got to be able to sit there and not blink and not give away any signals that you're willing to sell for a lot less. I had a client who wanted $6 million for his business. I did a lot of homework on him, figured out his competitive advantages, figured out the big buyer, and I said, I think we can get you a lot more than that, but you're going to have to sit tight because it's going to be, it's going to be a bumpy ride because I'm going to ask him for $20 million bucks. And we closed the deal at $18 million. But a couple of times when they offered me 10 or 12 or 14, I said, no thanks, and hung up the phone. And he had to trust me that I was reading the tea leaves correctly, reading the behavior, and eventually he got his money. But there were times the buyer called up and said, we can't pay you this kind of money. And I had coaches to say, okay, fine. And we, and we can, we can, we'll continue rolling out our plan, which is what they were worried about. We had to develop a strategy about how to grow at their expense. So you've got to have the stomach lining to do that. Because if you get nervous in those situations, or the, uh, the psychologists call it puddling out, if you puddle out in the middle of that conversation, buyers are going to sense it, see it, and they're going to back away. And so part of that play is making sure that your staying power has you gaining ground and not treading water. Is that, would that be a correct statement? That the business yeah. itself has to keep growing or, or be, you know, kicking Goliath in the knees, as you, as you call it? Well, the, the case I just was talking about, they had actually come close to selling the business to the only billion-dollar player in their industry. They were going to sell it to them for a four multiple, which was $6 million price tag. The deal fell apart at the 11th hour. They, they hired me a year later to figure out how to get them back to the table. And it took us a year to close the deal, but that's the one that closed for $18 million. During that period of time, his EBDA didn't move up an inch. So we sold the same company or with same metrics for 18 versus 6 because we had a theory as to what the buyer was going to do with it, and we played that out. Terrific. So what is it about the sellers that you've seen that gives them the fortitude to hold out when they do get an offer that on the surface is, is way above market? Some might refer to it as outrageous, but you, you're telling them to sit tight and wait for more. What yeah, are they've the, got what a, those personal qualities? They've got to be able to trust my read or whoever the investment banker is, because you, you really have to trust them that they know what they're doing. Because I've never had one of these happen where they got, you know, they, they wanted six, they got an offer of 10, and I turned it down and blew up the deal. That's never happened, because uh, I'm careful how I do that. But they have to be able to trust me to do that. So you got to be, you know, not all entrepreneurs can trust their advisors to that level. Secondly, they've got to be able to convince themselves whether they sell or not, that they're not, that they'll be okay, that they're not playing poker with scared money. 
because if they have to have the $6 million, it's really hard to gamble for 18 and get there if, if you're going to go broke in the meantime. So the seller has to be pretty strong-willed, strong backbone, and, and have an advisory team they trust implicitly. And then the, the fourth pillar is the advisor yep. and, and the advisors to the owner. So talk about what's the right team for the owner? Who do they need to have in place? The critical components are the investment banker and the attorney, because no matter what kind of a job or how good of a job the investment banker does, the attorney will be involved doing all the paperwork and will have a lot of access to the buyer's attorney. And at some point, the buyer's attorney is going to say to the seller's attorney, this is nuts. I can't believe my client's going to do this. And if my, if my client's attorney flinches and says anything remotely like, yeah, my guy would have taken a lot less or anything like that or just say, rolls his eyes even, uh, we're dead. And that will go right back to the buyer and they will pull that price off the table. So you've got to have a team that gets along well. Cause this is this is high-stakes poker. They've got to be, there has to be a lot of trust or else it won't work. And how would the owner identify both a banker that could do this for them and a lawyer that could do this for them? I'd start with the investment banker because that's, that's who makes this happen. Find an investment banker who can speak the language of getting outrageous prices and can prove it. You know, it's one thing to talk to you. I mean, it's a great theory, but it's very difficult to pull off. You want proof. You want to talk to clients who've experienced this as, as references. Secondly, once you find the investment banker, then they will lead you to the attorney because the investment banker is going to be real clear. I'm only, if you really want me to try to get you this kind of a price, then there's only three or four or five attorneys that I can do this and work with. I don't want a new attorney on the job. And so to the owner that says, well, you know, Gary's been my lawyer for 25 years. We went to high school together. You know, I, he's, he's been my lawyer. I'm not, I, he's got to close this transaction. What do you say? Well, in a nice way, the answer is tough. We get paid a lot of money to make these outrageous prices happen. And I'm not going to bet my fee on Gary, the high school friend. So either we get straight and we get the right kind of attorney on the team and he can take Gary to dinner and give him money for all I care, but you got to have the right guy on, on the team. This is not a time to have third stringers on the team. Hmm. So how do you think in, in bankers should get paid if they, if they get an outrageous price? Should, should they get an extra oh, reward? Absolutely. Here's my thinking on that, that my clients like. If you and I agree that your business is worth $10 million and we end up closing the deal at $8 million, I haven't done a very good job, and I should be paid under the market. My percentage should be under the market. But if you think it's worth 10, I think it's worth 10 in, in an average deal, we get 20, then my fee up to 10 should be fairly low. My fee between 10 and 12, 12 and 14, 14 to 20 should be pretty pretty good so that I end up with a whole lot of money, and you're really glad to pay it. And so is that how your firm works? Do you have a a tiered fee schedule that kind of incentivizes you to go over a bogey. Yep. We're, in, our, in our minds, we have to put our money where our mouth is. Yeah, that's great. So share with me some of the, probably, you know, your best story about someone who fell into these four pillars, perhaps before you, you wrote them and classified them and quantified them, but yeah. another owner that you worked with. And walk me through the advice you gave them, the pre-sale process, and then the sale process. Yeah, the best one, because it's really hard to quantify our value, right? Because, so we ended up with a 12 multiple. Who's to say that we couldn't have done that on a regular day, right? And that they couldn't have done it themselves. So that's one of the, the downsides to hiring an investment bankers. It's really hard to quantify how much money more 
it brought to the table. So we only really have one example that we can prove our value, and that's the one that actually had agreed to sell and came to us when it fell apart. We sold it to the exact same buyers, the exact same sales, the exact same EBTA, or three times the amount, 18 instead of six. So that's, that's by far the, the very best example of being able to prove it. Now, what went into that was that, uh, this company was in the medical waste business. If you, in their region, if you go into a doctor's office and there's a, you know, the sharps container on the wall, the red container where they put all the needles, this company yeah. picked those, this company picked those up, sanitized them and disposed of them. And they owned the market. They literally had a hundred percent of the market. And in at the hospitals, they call it red bag service where they're taking all the trash out of an operating room and waste and they're disposing of it appropriately. So they own that market. And so when I first met him, I said, well, why do they care about, why would they buy you? Because you're really small compared to them. The buyer was a billion dollar company. He said, I don't know. He said, but they really wanted to. Then they, then they walked away. I said, well, how are you able to keep them out of your market? They've tried, they've been trying for five years to gain customers in your market. You've been able to keep them out. He said, it's a variety of things, but he said, we have a very effective sales system and, and service and pricing and everything else. I said, well, what do you think they're the most concerned about? Why do they, because buying you picks up a new market, but it's not that much money. He said, I don't know. I said, any chance that they're worried that you could expand someday and begin to take away their, their uh, market share? He said, I don't know. I said, well, why couldn't you go to the, the, uh, the big company was headquartered in Chicago. I said, what's to keep you from going after the Chicago market? And eroding their market share quickly, like like you did in your, your current market. He says, I, I don't know. And I said, well, let's find out. So we had to develop a credible test to get their attention. And in the hazardous waste business, when you go into a new city, you have to apply for a permit. And there has to be public hearings. It cost you $200 to apply for the permit. So when we went to Chicago, we pulled the permit. The next day, the buyer who had been there you know, the year before called and said, what are you doing expanding to Chicago? He said, well, I've hired an investment banker. We're going to expand to six cities in the next year. And he reels off the six cities. What happens to be the six cities that were the largest for this company? And he said, we're going to go after them and, and you know, try to grow. We're just out here making a living. The buyer said, you know, you're crazy. You're going to hurt yourself. Why don't we restart the conversation about buying you again? And we had worked this all out with him. He read the script perfectly. He read his lines. He said, I have no interest in selling anymore. I think the company's going to grow a lot. So he, they went away. They kept calling back. And eventually he said, just call my investment banker. He'll, he'll handle the cost. And so for three months, we said no interest. Eventually he said, you've got to have a number. And I said, yeah, but you're not going to like the number. You're going to get mad at me. You're going to hang up the phone. And they said, well, eventually they said, just give us a number. I said, and it's similar to the story I told you earlier about this the signpost company. I said, we will sell to you for a industry multiple, which is four times what we think we're going to be making in the next three years, what our run rate will be of EBITDA. And they said, what? What, what is that? I said, it's basically the price takes 20 million bucks, coincidentally. And of course, they weren't happy and called me names and hung up the phone. But they called back a week later and said, you're nuts. We're not going to give you $20 million for that business. It's your client already agreed to sell to us last year for $6 million. But we will give you $12 million if you will sell the business to us. And I said, no, thanks, and hung up. Now, call the client. This is where the trust factor comes in. Because <laughs> he's, he, I called him and said, good news. The price is coming up. Bad news, I just turned it down. I said, it's $12 million bucks, And he you know, swallowed his tongue because he, he would have been happy with six. I said, well, trust me. I said, I had set up 
basically some safety valves in case so they wouldn't go away completely. They called back a few days later and raised their offer to 14. And ultimately, when they agreed to 18, they then called him after they agreed to 18 and said, we can't do this. But I'd already coached him that they will call and try to pull the price off the table. And to his credit, when they called and said, we can't pay you the $18 million, he said, then forget it, and, and hung up the phone. They called back 30 minutes later and said, we'll do the 18. So that's a great story because we had a, a benchmark to measure against of what they were willing to pay and what he was willing to take. So share, if you will, a story where either someone got scared in the poker game or you know maybe the buyer did walk away. And what do you attribute it to? I've never had anybody walk away. If we start the process... So, so it's, you have to get to a certain point. The fact that I think that the buyer is willing to pay an outrageous price is a theory that I can support with the financial model. That doesn't mean the buyer cares. So we've had situations where a client hired us, we put together the story, and we said we think there's a low probability that this will work, but we went ahead and tried, and the buyer said, don't care. They had no interest. They weren't looking to buy, didn't care about my client, didn't buy into our theory of pain or gain. So that happens. So, so we get hired to test the market. Uh, I've never had anybody exceed the average multiple and then not close the deal. At, at that point, it's already obvious that they've got something going on behind the scenes that makes them want to close this deal. How important is clean due diligence when you're trying to get an outrageous price? Are it people depends. willing to overlook things that other buyers wouldn't? Yeah, you'd be surprised. Because they're so rabid, assuming it's not one of the critical fundamentals of the deal, they, they can overlook it because already overpaying and what's the, what's the difference of, of, about a few issues but you can't the issues can't involve any of the competitive advantages and so as you think about the future of outrageous prices where do you see things going do you think this is where we're headed like maybe we have been in the tech industry where you know small uh, startups get swallowed by big companies at outrageous prices yeah i mean there will always be a market for outrageous prices as long as the buyers are looking to grow which big companies, that's, that's what they do. How many of them a year can be done? It's not a lot. You know, I tell most of my clients when I start the conversation, there's, you know, until we find a compelling story or reason, you're not a candidate for it. So I can't even give you, you know, any averages, but because of what I do, I, I see a fair number of them. But in general, for a number of companies that sell, it's a very small percentage that get an outrageous price. Hey, as, long, uh, as long as you're talking about ordinary companies. I'm not talking about companies that are curing cancer or have the latest and greatest technology. I'm talking about regular, ordinary companies. So let's try and bring it into a strike zone for some of the listeners. You know, are we talking about companies that are making a million to three or four or five million a year that could be, yeah, you know, I'd say one to, yeah. ten, one to ten. Okay. And they've got to have this competitive advantage where instead of getting a, a three to, a, let's even say, an eight multiple, they're going to be able to double it. Right. And they've got to be able to identify that strategic acquirer. I mean, there's certainly no private equity firm or financial buyer that's looking to or willing to pay an outrageous price, is there? By definition, they, they just can't because right. they're there for a return on, on investment and you can't pay twice the average multiple and get a return on your investment. Yeah. So what do you want to share with our listeners about, you know, maybe the research that you put into the book and, and your 25 years of experience working with owners, helping them sell their business and hopefully shooting for an outrageous price when the option might be available. What do you think are some of the best things you've learned? Yeah, the competitive advantages often are a surprise to my client that they've been operating this business. They've been so focused on the next sale and the next payroll that they don't realize that they've developed a competitive advantage that has great value. 
Now, that competitive advantage may only be valuable to a buyer. We did a deal in the produce industry. The big produce player in the country had locations all around the perimeter of the United States. My client happened to be dead in the middle of the United States. And we figured out a model that said that this buyer was deadheading across the middle of the country with empty trucks and it's costing them X number of millions of dollars a year in in wasted costs. So we, we went to the buyer and said, you know, if you had a location here that has this much EBDA, we can add to the EBDA with the fuel savings you're wasting today and, and, and other efficiencies we saw, and you can pay this price, and we're not going to sell for anything less than that. And they did it. So, But there's only one buyer who had that donut-shaped distribution uh, grid. Uh, most of them were, were, you know, were laid across the entire country. And that buyer was a billion-dollar, two-billion-dollar player and could afford it. So you, you've got to, I mean, all these planets have to be in alignment to pull this off. The question is, how do you figure that out? We've done deals with companies that were in the circuit board manufacturing business, which is very competitive. And we was doing $200 million. This one was bigger, $200 million in sales. And the, the ownership team came in, bought it, got, got, they fired their unprofitable customers. It went from $200 million to $100 million in revenue. And then they went on and got new customers and built it back to $200 million. So it looked like the company hadn't changed, but their profitability tripled. And their competitive advantage wasn't the fact that their EBDA had gone up so much. It was the fact that they had a management team that had the, the intelligence and backbone to fire half their customers after sales and had the ability to replace it. You know, we can all fire customers, but to find customers at the margins a lot higher is, is a real skill. And so we convinced a big player to buy them, and they were going to deploy this management team's philosophies and their sales techniques across their worldwide channel. And so our client didn't think of that as a competitive advantage, and it truly was. They thought they were just running the business smartly. So for our listeners that are, you know, owners of companies that are making, you know, a million, two million dollars a year, they're thinking about what are they going to do in the next three to five years to transfer their business? How should they figure out if they're a candidate for preparing for an outrageous price? Well, I mean, not to be self-serving, but I think the book help will guide you through a process to think about it. They can call me. Um, if they haven't ever sold their business and ever gone through this process, they're going to have a hard time believing that this is even possible. And it may not be, but nobody wants to waste their time. So so we we wouldn't take it on unless we think it's uh, viable. So I would, I would read the book. I think it's a easy way to get your head around it is what's important. And, and talk to me when the time's right and have me put them through the paces to see if that's a possibility. Great. So if our listeners did want to get in contact with you, what's the best way? Two ways. If you want to read more about the book, go to thinkoutrageous, which is one word, dot com, which is kind of fun. It's a, a, a website about all things outrageous in business. Or claytoncapitalpartners.com is where you can reach me also. All right, terrific. Well, Kevin Short, the author of Sell Your Business for an Outrageous Price. Hope all of our listeners enjoy the the title, the concept. Go ahead and get it. Read a copy of the book. Hand it to clients or people you think might want to sell their company for an outrageous price. Thanks for coming on the show. To all our listeners, hope you're enjoying us. And uh, feel free to reach out. Let me know if you have any guests that you'd like to hear on the show. Give us your comments and feedback. Make sure to like us on iTunes. Thanks so much. And to everyone, have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web 
at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.